Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody. Glad that you're here. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. And we welcome those joining us by live stream as well. Every Wednesday night, we'll have anywhere from 250 to 300 of you watching online and uh, studying God's Word with us. And so we're glad that you're here and glad that you're here in person as well. So uh, it's good to see all of you. We'll be looking at John chapter 9 tonight. We're looking at our fall Bible study, Portrait of Jesus, the Gospel of John. And we're now to chapter 9, and we'll continue one each week all the way through 21, which will take us into January. I was hoping to finish in December, but... We're going to have to be gone uh, some Wednesdays, and so we will uh, be wrapping up in January. And then next Wednesday night, we will not be having our midweek Bible study, so we'll not be having it online or in person either. Our ministry team is going to be at our uh, planning retreat once a year. We always plan for the future as our ministry team, so all of us will be gone and uh, next week, and so we'll not be having our midweek Bible study time. Uh, But we will follow two weeks from tonight. We'll pick up with chapter 10 of John. Also, whenever we finish uh, going through the Gospel of John, which will be in January, starting in February, we'll go to our next book study. It's going to be over the book of Revelation. And I think that you're going to really enjoy that as we look at Revelation chapter by chapter, just like we did the others. And that will be starting in February of 2022. So uh, looking forward to that and hope you will as well as we look at uh, at the book of Revelation. Well, let's pray together tonight, and we'll get started with John chapter 9. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. It is truth. It is God-breathed. It is inspired. It is infallible and errant. And Lord, you got your word to us exactly the way you want us to have it. And so tonight, as we open it up and study it wherever we are, whether we're in person here in our worship center or wherever you're joining us from, Father, I just pray your presence would be there and that you would teach us what you want us to know, the truth of Jesus' wonderful life. Lord, help us to get a portrait of Jesus based on the things that he said, and we pray that your blessings will be upon us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, turn with me, John chapter 9. Of course, the ESV is what we study each week, and if you look at your outline first tonight, you will see letter A on the outline. We're going to recap, first of all, where we have come so far in chapters 1 through 7. And then chapter 8, is, is a, we studied last Wednesday night. That's a background to tonight's. So first of all, let's recap chapters 1 through 7. If you remember, the book started not with a manger, but it started with the Word being made flesh. Started in eternity past. The Word has always been there. Jesus is always eternal, not a created being. And so that's where John began his story of Jesus was in eternity past, word made flesh. And then John the Baptist as a forerunner in chapter 1 was introduced. Chapter 2, Jesus performed his first sign. John calls them signs. They're actually miracles. Uh, The very first one, which was the wedding at Cana. And then right after that, Jesus cleansed the temple. We go to chapter 3 where he had the conversation with Nicodemus in which he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then John the Baptist again exalted uh, Jesus uh, in the end of chapter 3. And if you might remember, uh, as we talked about, that in the early church that John was addressing, there were some John the Baptist worshipers. And so that's one of the reasons that John, they were called the Meneans and still, uh, still have groups around in the Middle East, uh, Afghanistan, a group of John the Baptist worshipers. And so that's why one of the reasons why he had John the Baptist exalting Jesus so much in the first three chapters. 
chapter 4, the woman at Samaria, the, Jacob's well, uh, and then the living water uh, that Jesus talked about in chapter 4. Chapter 5 went to the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, which was introducing then the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles that has, has uh, run as a theme now for three chapters. Chapter 6 was the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus walked on water, uh, talked about being the bread of life. A lot of his followers turned away from him in chapter 6. And then chapter 7 was the Feast of Booths or the feast, you might remember, where light was a theme and water was a theme. They sent Jesus to be arrested. Uh, and then he made the statement that if you believe in me, that rivers of living water will flow from your belly. And so that's because the Feast of Booths, the water and the, and the light theme. So if you go to letter B on your outline there, the background to our chapter tonight is chapter 8. So if you remember last week, chapter 8, we saw the woman caught in adultery. Jesus stooped down and rolled on the ground twice. And we talked about that. And then in chapter 9 from verse 12, Jesus makes the statement of John 8 where he says, I am the light of the world. And so from that statement in verse 12 through verse 59, the rest of the chapter, there is one long discourse between Jesus and the religious leaders about light and about seeing and about being uh, 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 unblinded, I guess you might say, because it will come to chapter 9 tonight that picks up on that. So chapter 8, the religious leaders were confused as to who Jesus was. They were in darkness, Jesus said. They were blinded to spiritual truth, and so they took up stones, rocks to stone him, and the Bible said he passed through their midst and left. So now we come to chapter 9, and it's significant that the very first action after that was Jesus healing a man born blind. Why? It's a follow-up to this long conversation about spiritual blindness. Many times in the Gospels, you see Jesus saying something and turning right around and performing a miracle that was the action to what he said. You see that a lot, Mark especially, but all the Gospels, you see it, and you see it here. Long conversation about blindness, about spiritual darkness, about being blinded, and he turns right around and heals a man born blind. So he's putting into action what he just spoke. And so that's where chapter 9 picks it. Remember now, uh, in the original writing of it, there were no chapter divisions or verse divisions. So as a result of that, you go straight from 8 into 9, so Jesus healing the man born blind. And that's where we'll begin tonight. So look at letter C on your outline, Jesus heals a man born blind. Let's look at the first 12 verses. So um, chapter 9, verse 1, as he passed by... He saw a man blind from birth. Now, let's stop at verse 1 for a moment. Because if you remember the ending of chapter 8, it said Jesus passed by out of their midst when they tried to stone him. And now it said he passed by the man born blind. Was it the same thing? Did chapter 8 flow into chapter 9 where they're trying to stone him, he passed by them and then by the man sitting there. It's possible, or it could have been two pass-bys. But in either case, Jesus begins with a man sitting there, physically blind in the dark, and he was born that way. He had been in darkness his entire life. And here's a metaphor. This man sitting there blinded, and the conversation he just had with the religious leaders they were blinded. What was the difference? 
difference was the physically blinded man could recover. They never did. He could eventually see, and they never did. So it's the theme of light. What was one of the themes of the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles? Light. Remember we talked about last week that they would put in the court of the women a large menorah. The high priest would come and light three large torches. And this would, menorah would light for the entire week of the Feast of Tabernacles would light the entire temple area. And the, they would, individual Jews would come bring their own individual lights and dance around the three. And then after that, those were, those were extinguished. Jesus stood in the same spot and said, I am the light of the world. So now we're talking about light in dark, in sight, in blindness. Verse 2. And as the man was born blind from birth, as his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, to the disciples, this man was nothing more than a theology question. No mercy. They didn't feel sorry for him. They, they didn't feel badly that he was, I mean, here's a man they'd never seen, was born that way from a birth defect. They're just thinking, here's a theology question. Let's, let's talk a little theology, Jesus. Who sinned, this man or, or his parents? Now, there was a belief among the Jews that started with a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Ami, A-M-M-I, who said, quote, there is no death without sin and there's no suffering without iniquity. So the Jews believed if you're suffering in some way, it's because somebody sinned, either you or your parents. So if a man is born blind, obviously there's sin somewhere. Who sinned? Now, you and I might ask that, look at that question, go, that's ridiculous, how insensitive, but not to a Jew. There are five reasons, five beliefs that the Jews held that made this a legitimate question. First belief is, the Jews believe that it is possible for a person to sin in their pre-existent state before you're ever in the womb for you to commit a sin. They believe that. How? I don't know either, but they believe that. Second belief, they believed it was possible for a fetus to sin in the womb. How? I don't know that either. They believe that. Third belief they had, they believed in reincarnation. And they believed that it was possible possible that this man had sinned in a previous life and he's paying for it in this life That's a, that was another Jewish belief fourth theory, uh, belief among the Jews they believe that it is possible to suffer now for a future sin so it was possible in the minds of the disciples and all the Jews this man was stricken with blindness now because he would do something later in his life that was a sin and they also believed that parents could sin and it be visited to the next generation. You, a child would suffer for what a parent chose to do. They believed all five of those things. So if you can sin in a pre-existent state or in the womb or in a former life or in the future life or your parents, this was a good question. How did, why was he born blind? 
Now, can, can you imagine this little boy, this man is a little boy, trying to figure all this out? Mommy, why am I blind? And she doesn't know what to tell him because Jews believe all five of those. So the disciples asked Jesus that question, and notice Jesus' response. He never really answered. Jesus answered, verse 3, it was not this man's sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Sometimes things happen in your life that are negative because God's going to use that to do a great work in your life. He did his, the man was saved. So it's possible you may be going through things not because anybody sinned, but because God's going to do a good work in you. And that's the method he chose to do it. Possible. Verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. It's twice he said that now. Having said these things, well, let's stop at verse 5 first. Jesus made this statement. First of all, he, he initiated the healing. Did you notice that? It wasn't that the man cried out, Jesus, heal me. He's just sitting there and didn't say a word. Jesus is the one that went by him and initiated the healing. The man didn't. So, verse 6, having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. What in the world was going on there? Why did Jesus do that? Well, a lot of, we don't know for, for sure. There are some theories. One, one people, some say, well, spittle was unclean. Uh, and so, therefore, Jesus was showing that he's, uh, he's unclean now, but when you wash it away, he's going to be made clean. Eh, I guess it's possible. Some say, well, he created mankind out of the dust, and now he spits on the dust and makes mud and recreates this man who had come from the dust. Eh, maybe, maybe so. There was a belief in this day that the spittle of a, of a powerful godly man had power or the spittle of somebody who was fasting had power. That was a belief in those days. And so some people say that was just showing that he was a man of power. Others say the spittle, it was, he spit on the ground because it made the blindness even more intense because he, now he's got pressure on the eyes from the mud. Not only is he blind, he is, he's more intense in order to magnify the cure, made the cure even greater because the blindness is even heavier. It happened with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You remember, he says, pour more water, pour more water. I'm going to make this harder. I'm going to make it harder. And so maybe Jesus was just making it harder. I don't know. I guess it's a possibility as well. But you notice Jesus used different methods to heal people. He didn't do the same method every time. And I believe that was to show that the power was not in the method. It was in the God. It was in him. And so that's why I believe he used the different methods to heal people. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, records two other healings with spittle. And so Jesus made the mud, put it on the man's eyes, and then he gave him a command that's interesting, verse 7. He said to him, go, 
wash in the pool of Siloam. In a parenthesis, which means sent. Why does it tell us that? So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, why specifically the pool of Siloam? Why didn't he just say, go find a pool somewhere and wash? But he didn't. He said specifically, I want you to go to a specific pool. Why that one? Well, the pool of Siloam was southeast of Jerusalem. The name Siloam means sent. And the water at Siloam, Siloam came through Hezekiah's tunnel. You may remember from the Old Testament, Hezekiah built a tunnel. Some of you have been there and walked through that tunnel when we go there to Israel to visit. Water would go through Hezekiah's tunnel through a conduit of the city. And from the Siloam spring, water was drawn out of the spring and poured on the great altar of the temple at the Feast of Booths. It was a symbol of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit to come in latter days. So, this would have just happened a few days earlier. They would have taken the water from the pool of Siloam, gone to the great altar, poured it on top of it, saying, one day the Holy Spirit's going to come in power. And so now Jesus tells him to go wash with that same water. Go to that pool that means sent. Go to that one that has water drawn symbolically that is water from God. Go to that one. But here's something else that's interesting. You remember the last few Wednesday nights as we've been talking, Jesus had conversation with the religious leaders. And, and if you notice that the theme kept coming up, who sent you? I'm sent from the Father. Where are you from? I'm sent from the Father. How many times the last Wednesday night, through a few Wednesday nights, have you heard Jesus saying, I am sent from the Father. Sent from the Father. So go to a pool called Sent and wash. He's still teaching. This whole thing fits together. So he went and washed. Can you imagine him thinking, this is ridiculous. Why do I have to travel all across to the southeast part of Jerusalem, blind, stumbling along, stumbling down into the water? Is this a fool's errand? Am I going to wash and still be blind after this man spit on the ground and cake my eyes with it? But he did. Jesus didn't go with him. He went by himself. It was an act of faith. And he washed, and for the first time, he could see. This is the very first time that a man born blind had ever been healed. It had never happened. Never happened in the Old Testament. Never happened in Genesis, all the way through Old Testament. Never happened in the Gospels. A man born blind had never been healed. And there was a belief the Jews knew very well in the Old Testament the belief that only God could heal the blind. Prophets couldn't. Priests couldn't. Apostles couldn't. Disciples couldn't. Only God could heal the blind. Psalm 146.8 and Isaiah 35.5. God healed the blind. So what statement was Jesus making? He's God. So those belief systems today that say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, here's another one. <laughs> another claim to be God. We'll see another one later tonight. 
So he washed and he came back with sight. Look at verse 8. The neighbors and those who had, been, been, who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the same man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It's him. Others, No, he's like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. Verse 10. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. Notice the word anointed there. Anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. So he went without Jesus going. He washed and Everyone was amazed. Now, notice what the man knew about Jesus. Look at that for a moment. Did he know him to be son of God? No. But he's healed. Did he know him to be the Messiah? No. He knew his name. He knew where he's from. And that's about it. But still, he was healed. Go to letter D on your outline now. The Pharisees question the man, verses 13 to 17. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Now, hold on for a second. Jesus knew he's going to get in trouble for that, didn't he? I mean, the man's been blind his whole life. That's one day. Wait till, wait till the next day. Wait till Monday. Or wait till Sunday if it was the Sabbath. Why did he specifically do it on the Sabbath? Knowing that those same people that had just picked up rocks about to stone him, you and I would probably be going, whew, I don't want to do that again. I barely got out of my life last time. I'm not going to do that again. He goes right back and does the same thing on the Sabbath incurring the wrath again, making a point. He was challenging their traditions. How would that challenge the tradition? Because there was a belief that, uh, of course, God just gave the Israelites the command, you know, to honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. But the religious leaders came up with all of these rules in addition to that, and one of them was you could not knead, K-N-E-A-D, like you're kneading bread. You couldn't do that on the Sabbath. That's work. You're producing something. So Jesus, getting the spittle and the mud and forming it, that would be kneading. And that would be work. And that's ridiculous. So Jesus never challenged God's command of the Sabbath he challenged the human interpretations of it because they saw those as equal with God's. And Jesus was saying, that's ridiculous. So he did it on the Sabbath. And they're going, wait a minute, you, you, can't, you can't do work on the Sabbath. Now, there was one, uh, Grotius, a secular Jewish uh, writer, stated that Jews, if you were a prophet, if they consider you, a, you to be a prophet, you could set aside some of the Sabbath laws. 
So was Jesus trying to tell them, I'm a prophet? We don't know. It's possible. So anyway, did it on Sunday, and the Pharisees got upset. Verse 15. So the Pharisees asked, again asked him how he received the sight. And he said, he put mud on my eyes, and I wash, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they again asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Now, this is kind of a ridiculous sight if you think about it. The religious leaders considered a man who was born blind a sinner because somebody sinned, obviously. They considered him to be unclean because he was blind. They considered him to be just an outcast. But yet, they're asking him theology questions. That's ridiculous, isn't it? They're asking him about God. They're the God experts. He's an outcast. But yet, they're questioning him. Jesus, of course, challenged the traditions and challenged the Pharisees. And they're trying to figure out. They keep asking the man the same question, hoping to get a different answer. And he keeps giving the same answer. What do you think, what do you think he is? I think he's a prophet. And Jesus caused division. Notice how many times in Scripture it tells us that Jesus came to bring division. I mean, we think, oh, he came to unify everybody. No, no, he came to bring division, he said. In fact, sometimes the division's within a family if they're not all believers. The division can be there because you're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. And sometimes that brings division. Either you believe in him or you don't. And sometimes that brings division. And it says here they were divided over him. Well, the man didn't give them the answers they wanted, so he went, they went to the man's parents. Let's go to letter E on your outline, verses 18 to 23. The man's parents are questioned, and they want no part of this questioning. Verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son, whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? <clears throat> His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this, parenthetically, verse 22, because they, these things they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A couple of thoughts here. The parents were threatened with excommunication by the religious leaders if they didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. Now, excommunication was a, a really big deal 
back then. It's not to us today, to a lot of people today. I mean, if somebody's excommunicated out of a church today, they just go to another church. It's, it doesn't affect you socially. It doesn't affect you religiously. It doesn't affect you spiritually. <clears throat> but in those days, if you were excommunicated from the synagogue, you could not do anything socially. You couldn't go get food. You couldn't go to the store. You couldn't participate in social events. You couldn't be around your family. You couldn't go to church Sunday <clears throat> or rather on the Sabbath. And there were 24 different grounds that you could be excommunicated. So this was a great fear of all the Jews that they would do something that would cause them to be put out of the synagogue or excommunicated from the life of Jewish believers. Started in Ezra chapter 10 verse 8 in the Old Testament. So this was a huge threat that the religious leaders hung over the heads of the people if they didn't do what they wanted them to do, will excommunicate you. And that was a fear of the Jews. Now, according to Dodds, a New Testament theologian who's very well respected, he said there were three degrees of excommunication. First degree is if you do something, you're excommunicated that the religious leaders disapprove of, you're excommunicated for 30 days. Second degree is if you're unrepentant of what you did, they're going to make it another 30 days, 60 days. And the third degree is if you're still unrepentant of what you did after 60 days, you would be what's called karim in the Old Testament, banished. For life, you would be considered as a leper. So your social life, your political life, your family life, your spiritual, your, your religious life, every aspect of your life would be ruined. So they feared greatly excommunication. So the religious, leader, religious leaders knew that. So call a man's parents and they had threatened them with excommunication if they didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. And so they are just, they're frightened. To get around it, they said, yes, this is our son. Yes, he was born blind. Anything after that, go ask him. He's of age. He can answer for himself. Now, Jews considered anybody 13 years of age or older as an adult. Aren't you glad we don't do that? Aren't you glad 14-year-olds aren't adults around here? 13 and above, they considered them to be responsible. So, he was over, most theologians think he's probably in his mid-20s, definitely over 13. He's, he can answer for himself. Now, what's interesting is they are so emphatic that they do not want to answer. It's reflected in the Greek syntax. If you look at verse 21, Every personal pronoun, he, he, uh, uh, he, um, he is of age, he will speak for himself, his, himself, they're all in the emphatic. So it would sound something like this. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know. Go ask him. He can answer for himself. Kind of a harsh tone back. Is there a way of saying, we want no part of this? So, they left and went back to the man again. 
Letter F on your outline, verses 24 to 34, the man is questioned again. Now they're just starting to badger the witness. Look at verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. That's their way of saying, Swear to God you'll tell us the truth. We know this man is a sinner. Verse 25, he answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. <laughs> Folks, that is a powerful statement. That is gold. That was a powerful statement. Look, you're trying to get me to put words in my mouth, all your theology talk, Fine. All I know is I was blind, and now I can see. And you know, sometimes people do the same to us. They ask questions of us, or they say things meant to embarrass you as a Christian, or mock you as a Christian, or question you as a Christian, or confront you as a believer. But there's, there's something about the power of personal experience. You cannot refute what happened to you. And he could not refute what happened to me. And so, he said here, if you've watched The Chosen, the, the, the show about Christ, Mary Magdalene, I was one way and now I'm another way, and the difference was Jesus. And that's what he said. I don't know. You say what you want to about him, but I was blind, but now I can see. And they didn't appreciate it, verse 26. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They're asking the same question, wanting a different answer. He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Oh, he's starting to, that's some smack talk now, isn't it? Man, now he's starting to, whoa. Maybe you want to be a secret disciple of his. Is that why you want to talk about Jesus so much? And they didn't appreciate it. They reviled him, verse 28, saying, You are his disciples, but we're disciples of Moses. Verse 29, We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as far as this man, which was a term of derision, by the way, sarcastic, this man, talking about Jesus, we do not know where he comes from. Wait a minute, what was the name of the pool that the man went to? Salo. What does Salo mean? Sent. They'd always been wondering where he came from. We don't know where he came from. So then it says in verse 30, the man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. In other words, he's saying, you know, you know, fellows, I don't know which is more amazing, your unbelief or my cure. I don't know which one's more amazing. Yet, you, do, you don't know where he comes from. And he opened my eyes, verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Where does it say that God doesn't listen to sinners? Well, it says a couple of times in the Old Testament. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. And Isaiah 1, 15 says the same. So it is true that God does not hear the prayer of the person who's in sin. 
We know, verse 31, that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Verse 32, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And it hadn't, remember? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? Uh-oh, and they cast them out of the synagogue. Then it happened, they excommunicated him. So they reviled him, abused him, rejected him, insulted him, and finally cast him out of the synagogue. So now what all the Jews dreaded has happened to this man. So look what's happening all in one day to this man. He's blind his whole life. And in one day, he gets his sight back and gets excommunicated from the temple. That's a, it's a busy day, isn't it? Well, see what happens next, how the story closes. Jesus finds the man again, letter G on your outline, verses 35 to 41. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, some of your translations may say Son of God. Some translations say that. Some say Son of Man. Same thing. It's the Messiah. So here's the picture. Jesus heard that he was cast out, excommunicated, and Jesus felt for him. So he went and found him. What a beautiful picture. This man's going about his day, life after this. And Jesus made a point to go find him. And he didn't say, you know, man, I'm, I'm sorry that you're cast out. I'm glad you got your sight back, but I'm so sorry for your excommunication. He just asked him a question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He didn't ask him that question before the healing, right? So, so the healing was not the contingent upon belief. But now that he is healed, he asked him to believe. And the word you there in the Greek syntax is a double emphatic. So as emphatically as you can say the word you in that question, that's how it's translated. Meaning, you must make a decision one way or the other right now. So it's a pretty harsh question. Do you believe the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. There you have it. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. I know groups today that say Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. He did here. Verse 38, and he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Now, Hold on a second. This is one of the few times in the Gospels where somebody directly worships Jesus as God. It's the first time. You remember later, Jesus calmed the storm and he got in the boat and Peter worshiped him. And you remember after the resurrection, Thomas 
said, my Lord and my God, which is the highest affirmation of Jesus' deity from the lips of someone, he worshipped him. So, what basically Jesus was saying was, sir, you cannot worship God in the temple anymore. But I will accept your worship and you can worship God in me. You can't worship the temple anymore, but you can worship right here. Jesus accepted worship. Now again, for all of those people, belief systems, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims, Jews, all those that do not, which is most of our planet, by the way, that do not believe Jesus ever claimed to be God. Here's another one. He didn't say, whoa, 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 no, 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 don't, don't worship me, young man. You worship God. He accepted the worship. Proof he knew he was God. Interesting here, the man who had the frown of the religious leaders has the favor of God. What does it matter if everybody rejects you if you have the favor of God? And he had rejection, but he had favor. So the man has gone from, look at the progression. He's gone from this man, heal me, to you're a prophet, to he's the master, to he is God, to I believe in you, to I worship you. Merrill Tinney, who is uh, one of the, or was one of the great New Testament theologians, wrote New Testament survey books, textbooks. He says this moment is the continental divide of Jesus' early ministry. Because Jesus is the pivot upon which human destiny turns. And this statement from the man and the worship of the man of Christ is the, is the linchpin that, that projects us into the next section of Jesus' ministry. His worship from the man born blind. But look how it closes verse 39. Jesus responded to the man, for judgment I came into this world. That those who do not see you may see. So in other words, he now has physical sight and now he has spiritual sight. He has both. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. What was Jesus saying? He was basically saying, if you're blind and the light is available to you, but you do not avail yourself of the cure, I can't help you. Nothing else I can do. And folks, tonight, live stream if you're watching here in person, if God has offered you salvation... And you've not received it yet. And you keep putting it off. What else can he do? And so here's an irony. If you're conscious of your blindness, then you can be relieved and, and see. 
But if you're content with your blindness, you'll never see the light. And that's what he told the religious leaders. There's a huge difference between somebody who's blind, I mean really physically blind, and somebody who just closes their eyes. The big difference, isn't there? One just refuses to see, the other one can't. And that's what Jesus was saying. This man couldn't see, but now he can. You religious leaders, you're just closing your eyes because you don't want to see the truth. This man has passed from darkness into light. And he now has sight. And you remain blind. Interesting that this all took place at a festival of light, wasn't it? We'll pick up two weeks from tonight with Jesus being the good shepherd. Questions or comments? If you want to go to the microphone so those on the live stream can hear as well. Any questions or comments that you would like to ask or make before we close? All right. Well, it's good to see all of you. Let's pray together, ask God's blessings on the rest of the week, and we'll dismiss. Father, thank you for your word. We uh, believe and agree with the blind man that, Lord, you are the only Savior of the world. You are God in the flesh, and we believe. And so, Father, thank you for the light that you brought to us. And I want to pray for anyone tonight who is hearing my voice that has never opened their eyes to truth and light. They will before it's too late. God, direct us the rest of the week. We love you and bring us back Sunday to worship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. Have a good rest of the week.